Good morning, folks. We want to welcome you to our Sunday school time here at the Kerwinsville Christian Church. We feel it's very important that you are growing in your understanding of God's Word, and that's why we are focused on the Old Testament survey. And so we're going to be looking at First and Second Samuel, First Chronicles today. In particular, we're going to be looking at chapters 1 through 3 of um, of First Samuel, as we look at really the introduction to the whole book, as we are introduced to a prophet, and that's why I've called this lesson uh, "The Rising of a Prophet." Now, as we go through this, we're going to try and touch on some cultural things so that you understand what's happening, why people are acting the way they are, and why things are happening as we see them. So I'm going to kind of give that to you. We're not going to read through the passage, although I may refer to passages as we go through our time today. So let's begin. We're going to start with, in chapter 1, with the birth of of the prophet, the birth of Samuel, goes really up to chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, which is the song of Hannah. So let's, let's get right into our lesson this morning, okay? So let's begin. First of all, when we come to chapter 1, in the first few verses, we're going to see that we are introduced, the writer introduces the reader to a Levite named Elkanah and his two wives. Now, immediately as you're reading the text, you're going to say, George, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. my Bible says he's an Ephraimite. So he's from the tribe of Ephraim. How can you say that he is a Levite? Well, this is where some of the concern is concerning the accuracy of Scripture. We know that Elkanah is a Levite because we see the lineage of Samuel later, and he ultimately is a descendant of Levi. Well, what is the issue of being called an Ephraimite? Well, that basically is describing where he is from, where he lives. Remember, the Levites were dispersed throughout Israel to have a role, a spiritual role throughout Israel. And this particular Levite, Elkanah, lives in the hill country in Ramah of Ephraim. So... That's why we can know for sure that he is a Levite, and he can also be basically addressed as an Ephraimite, but he's not from the tribe of Ephraim. But he has two wives. Now, we're going to discuss that here in a moment because that's really important to uh, our discussion today in chapter 1, particularly with the issue going on with Hannah. You say, wow, polygamy, God allowed it? Well, yeah, not because that was what his plan was. We know that his plan has always been one woman, one man for one lifetime. But you're going to see that the situation and circumstances really forced them to take another wife. And we're going to see that here in a moment. Here's what's going on. His first wife, Hannah, was barren. And she was tormented by her rival. What do you mean her rival? That would be the second wife. So Hannah was the first wife. And with that, she was not able to have children. Okay, so what does that have anything to do with the fact that he would take another wife? Well, in their culture, you need to understand, there is immense societal pressure 
for the wife to bear a child, not just any child, but to bear a male child in order to carry on the family name. That was even true with the Levites. There wasn't necessarily an inheritance for him to claim, as there would be if they were from another tribe, but to carry on the family name in serving the Lord. And she wasn't able to do that. So Ilkanah took another wife. Now that wife was able to bear children. And being the rival, and if you want to understand the type of rivalry that exists, you just simply need to go back to Genesis and look at the rivalry that existed between Leah and Rachel. And that's the whole problem with polygamy. There's a rivalry for gaining the interest of the husband. So the first wife was barren, Hannah was barren, and she was tormented by her rival. Now, this creates a crisis for Hannah. So she was grieved by not having children, and Ilkanah could not console her. In fact, if you read, it's actually quite interesting if you read verse 8 and you, and you read what Ilkanah says. It's like he's not cluing in, but he's like, Can I, am I not enough for you? No, no, you're not enough for her. Her whole basis of being a woman in Israeli society at that point was whether or not she could bear children. And, and let's remind ourselves of their culture. Their culture at this point, women hoped that they would be the one who would bear the Messiah. So to be barren was a stigma in their society. And she was very grieved by that. And Ilkana, he is not able to console her. He's not able to console her at all. Now, we see the text then moves to where they are in Shiloh. Probably what's happening here is, is because he is a Levite, he is on a rotation to go and serve at the tabernacle, which is in Shiloh. And so when he goes on his rotation to serve as a Levite, serve at the tabernacle, he brings his family with him. So while they are there, in her anguish, Hannah prayed at the tabernacle and made a vow to the Lord concerning a son. She basically said to the Lord, Lord, if you give me a son, I will give him to you. He will dedicate his life to serving you. So she's in anguish, praying at the tabernacle, probably in the court of women, because she would not be allowed any further than that, and she is praying, asking God to fulfill her wish of having a son, and she made a vow to him. Now, while she's there, the high priest at this time is a guy by the name of Eli, and he's very, very old. So the high priest Eli witnessed her praying without speaking, and thought she was drunk. What's happening here is that she's praying, and when she's praying, her lips are moving, but no sound is coming out. So Levi, Eli is seeing this, and he thinks this woman has to be drunk. So he rebukes her for her drunkenness in the tabernacle. Now, you say, wow, is, is that possible that he would think she was drunk? Well, we're going to see here in a moment that things are not good in the culture there at the tabernacle at this time. There were abuses by the priesthood 
and you're going to see that things are not right there at the tabernacle. So yeah, he probably thinks, here's a woman who's drunk. And he rebukes her. He rebukes her. Now, after rebuking her for her drunkenness, Hannah expressed her grief, and Eli blessed her. So what happens is, is as soon as he rebukes her, Hannah expresses, no, I'm not drunk. I'm in anguish of heart, and I'm seeking something from God. And he, being the high priest, basically blessed her. Blessed her. In fact, when Eli told her that the Lord would grant her request, that's what he's doing here, he's saying, the Lord give you what you're asking for, she went away no longer sad. In fact, it says from that point on, she went ahead and started eating. She must have been fasting up to that point. She was of grief wanting to seek God for something. Now, this is an illustration of what some of us would know. We've heard it years ago about the whole issue of praying it through. When you sense as you are praying about something that God has heard you, oftentimes people will quit praying about it because they know that God has heard them. This is what's going on here with Hannah. She knows that God has heard her. How does she know that? High priest, spiritual leader of Israel says, God will grant you your request. Now, text goes on and it tells us that the Lord remembered Hannah and she conceived and she bore a son and named him Samuel. So the Lord remembered Hannah, she bore a son and named him Samuel. Samuel. Now, after Samuel was weaned, Hannah and Elkanah presented Samuel to the Lord at Shiloh. Now, I need to explain this to you because I don't want you thinking that what happens here is that when the baby is weaned, they're bringing the baby and giving the baby to the temple, to the tabernacle. That's when we think of weaning in terms of today in the United States. In their situation, it was completely different. Children were weaned later, maybe about age five or six, possibly seven. You say, really? Yes, that was their culture. And so probably at the time of his weaning, remember when... Uh, Isaac was weaned. They had a feast. At the time of his weaning, they brought him and presented him in fulfillment of the vow to the Lord at Shiloh. At Shiloh. Now, that brings us to the end of chapter 1. And I would encourage you to read that whole chapter yourself and see all that's going on there. Then we come to chapter 2. Again, this is in that first section, the birth of Samuel. And we see that Hannah expresses her praise to the Lord, her praise and worship to the Lord, who answered her concerning a son. And you're going to see that she addresses the whole issue of having a rival, which was Hilkanah's first wife, second wife, excuse me. And you're also going to notice that this is a beautiful poem that is written. And some aspects of it are quoted later by Mary at her Annunciation in the New Testament. So I just want you to recognize that. Now, then we come to chapter 2, verses 11 through 36, and we're going to see that there is 
a culture of sin at Shiloh. There's a problem at the tabernacle. There's a problem among the priesthood, and we're going to see that here. So when you come to verse 11, it talks about Samuel in a positive sense, about him growing, but in the background of Samuel ministering to the Lord, the sin of the priesthood is presented. So here's Samuel, he's growing, he's, he's, he's profiting, he's doing well, he's serving the Lord at the tabernacle. But in the background, he is ministering, he is existing in an area where the priesthood is corrupt. The priesthood is not doing well. And so we're going to see a couple of illustrations of that in this passage. So let's talk about them, okay? Very specifically, the priests were taking the choice meats from the sacrifices that were reserved for the Lord. Remember when we went through the Levitical laws and we went through uh, the laws in Deuteronomy? There was specific portions of the sacrifices that were given to the priesthood. And everything else was to be consumed by fire as a sacrifice to the Lord. That included grain offerings, any kind of offerings. The priests were told to take specific things for themselves. Now, here we are in Shiloh. They're not abiding by that. In fact, they've decided that what they're supposed to take isn't good enough. They want portions. They want portions of the Lord's sacrifice that they feel that they should have. And they're doing that. In fact, the text will tell you that they're... Tradition was to put the meat in a pot and bring it up with a fork that was being boiled. And they didn't want boiled meat. Rather, what they wanted was fresh meat. And so they would threaten people at the offering to take from the sacrifice, even before it was consumed by fire, what they wanted. And that was terrible in the sight of the Lord. That was an abomination to them, that they were basically blaspheming the sacrifices to the Lord. And we see that this is going on. Now again, in the midst of this story then, you see then that Eli blessed Hannah and Elkanah, and then it goes on and it tells us that she bore three more sons and two daughters. So she had five more kids beyond Samuel. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Well, then again... We also see now that there's another aspect to the sin of what's happening at Shiloh, and that's the issue of sexual sin. Here we see Eli is rebuking his sons. He rebuked his sons for their sexual sin with women who gathered at the tabernacle. So because it was a tabernacle, there would be women who would be gathering at the tabernacle to worship, and they prayed upon these women. In fact, it's very a real New Testament principle to that would be found in 2 Peter chapter 2 where it talks about false teachers, prophets, praying on unstable souls. And so they were praying upon and having sex with women at the tabernacle. And, and Eli is rebuking them and telling them that God will deal with them. And here's what I want you to see. The sons did not heed the rebuke of their father, for the Lord had determined 
to kill them. Now, that's, that's an interesting thing. Now, we might be bothered by that, but you're going to see here in this passage that it's saying very clearly that they're not listening because God had determined to kill them. How's that possible? Well, to understand how God had determined to kill them, you need to go back in your mind to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through the end of the chapter, and you see very clearly that when people seek after their own lust, there comes a point when God gives them over to their own desires which end in destruction. So there was a point here with Eli's sons that they crossed a line. Now, I don't know where that line is, but they crossed the line with God, and God gave them over to do what they wanted to do, but what it was bringing for them was ultimately destruction because they had basically brought on themselves destruction. And God was determined to kill them. So we see the sin at Shiloh here. And it is amazing that this is taking place. Now, there's one aspect, another aspect here that I want you to see with regard to chapter 2. And that's what we see happening in verses 28 through 36. Because what we see now is, is that we're introduced to a prophet. Now, we don't know who this prophet is. He's unnamed. But this prophet shows up to bring a word from the Lord to Eli, the high priest. So an unnamed prophet visited Eli and proclaimed the Lord's judgment on his house. So the Lord is sending a messenger, a prophet, to tell Eli, Eli, I'm holding you and your entire household responsible for what's happening at the tabernacle. I'm holding you responsible for the sin of your sons because you have not constrained them. You have not, you being the high priest, have not brought order to my house here. And there is sin that's taking place with regards to the sacrifices, with regards to the sexual sin. And I'm holding you and your household in judgment because you haven't done something to bring order here. Now, here's what the Lord then says. He declares that Eli's sons would die. There's going to be an event that everyone's going to talk about. We're going to talk about that event next week. Everybody's ears are going to ring when they hear what happens. And when this event happens, your sons will die. He's making it very clear that they're going to be judged. And then he goes on and says, and no male in his family would see old age. So basically he says to Eli, from this point on, you're pretty old, but I'm going to tell you right now, every one of the sons who come from you, your, your posterity from here on out, they are not going to see old age at all. Wow, what a judgment. They're going to die a young age. They're not going to live as old as you are, Eli. And so this was the word from the prophet to Eli. Now, you're going to see this throughout the Old Testament, that God will raise up prophets. It's almost like something separate from the priesthood. It's definitely separate from the monarchy. But God raises up these prophets to come and proclaim the word of the Lord. This is not the first time we're going to be introduced to prophets. 
And it's not the first time we're going to be introduced to prophets who are not named because it's not important that we understand who they are as a person. We just need to understand their message. And this prophecy that is given will be reflected throughout Israel's history with regards to the longevity of the high priest. And we're going to see that, and it's going to be referred back to later on, especially in First and Second Samuel. So then the Lord pronounced, here's something that's very interesting. In this passage, the Lord pronounced that he will raise for himself a faithful priest to serve him. A faithful priest to serve him. Specifically, I want you to notice what it's saying here. I want you to notice what it's saying here. Verse 35 of chapter 2, And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before my anointed forever. So he's talking about raising up a faithful priest who will walk before his anointed. Now the reference there to the anointed can either mean David or it can mean the Lord Jesus. But he's going to raise up for himself a faithful priest. It's more than likely that what he's talking about here is a grandson or a great-grandson from Eli, whose name is Abathar, who would serve as the high priest before his anointed David. That's what it's referring to here. Okay? So now we come to chapter 3. Chapter 3 begins with an interesting statement in verse 1. Let me read to you what it says. Okay? Let me read to you what it says in chapter 3. Now the boy... Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days, and there was no widespread revelation. So the writer points out that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. So in those days, this would be the days of the judges, this there was no revelation from God for his people. It was very rare that there would be a revelation. We, we saw one of the rare times just in the judgment that was expressed in chapter 2. So that's how chapter 3 begins because it's setting up for you and I to see the calling of a prophet, the calling of Samuel. Okay, so I think we're familiar with this story somewhat. I hope you are. If you're not, I would encourage you to go and read this story. Okay, read this narrative. So one evening, as the tabernacles are, are, is getting, it's describing the end of the day for, for the activity at the tabernacle. One evening, as everybody's going to rest, the Lord called to Samuel, but he thought that Eli had called him. So at this point, Eli... Samuel is ministering to Eli, who is getting to the point where he's not seeing well. So as a young boy, he probably was tasked with taking care of the high priest. So as, as Samuel is going to sleep, he hears a voice calling to him, Samuel, Samuel. And he thinks it's Eli. So he goes to Eli and says, here I am, you called me. Now Eli, obviously being wakened from his sleep, says, boy, I didn't call you, go back to bed. Well, Again, the Lord called to Samuel, this is a second time, 
And once again, he thought that Eli had called him. And again, he goes to Eli, hey, I'm here. You called me. And Eli says, no, I didn't call you. You go back to bed. You go back to bed. The writer points out that at this time, Samuel did not know the Lord. So at this time, Samuel did not know the Lord. Okay, so at this point, he didn't know the word of the Lord. He didn't know how to distinguish the Lord in his life. Isn't that interesting? He's serving, ministering to the Lord in the tabernacle, but at this point, he doesn't know the Lord. So after the third calling, same situation, third calling, the Lord calls to him, he goes to Eli, okay? After the third calling, Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy and instructed him. So by this time, Eli's starting to recognize what's going on here. He's not the one calling him, but somebody is, and he's realizing the Lord is calling this boy. And so he instructs Samuel as to what he's to do. The next time he calls you, here's how you respond, okay? Here's how you respond. So once again, the Lord called Samuel, and he responded to Eli as, he had, as Eli had instructed him. So he did all that Eli told him. And then what happens then is we then see that the Lord gives a message to Samuel. He gives a message. The Lord revealed that he would bring judgment that he had pronounced on Eli's family. Basically, he's saying to, to Samuel, Samuel, I'm going to do what I had told Eli earlier through the prophet. I'm going to bring judgment on his family. And that was the message. Now, in the morning, okay, in the morning, mean, so basically you're a young boy, think about this, you're a young boy, you get this message from the Lord, he says, I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do, I'm going to bring judgment on Eli, who's the high priest, who is the one that Samuel is ministering to, serving, and here you are in the morning, you got this message, so Eli comes to him and says to him, boy, tell me what he said, don't you hold back on me. So in the morning, Eli told Samuel to tell him everything that the Lord has shown him. So Samuel told Eli everything, and Eli pronounced that the Lord will do as he wants. Wow, what a response. I mean, if you're getting this news, what do you do? I think you do what Eli did, and that's simply say, well, the Lord's will be done. That's basically what he's saying. The Lord will do what he said. Because I think Eli, in his heart, knows that things have not been good and he hasn't done right. Things have not been good and he hasn't done right. Now, when you come then to the end of the chapter, specifically when you come to verses 19 through 21, it makes some statements here about Samuel that I think are very important. First of all, it says that Samuel grew and the Lord fulfilled all that Samuel prophesied. So verse 19 makes it clear that Samuel continues to grow in his relationship spiritually, and when he proclaims a message from the Lord that he has received, God made sure to fulfill everything that Samuel was told to tell. Everything that Samuel prophesied came true. Wow. What a confirmation. 
In fact, verse 20 then tells us that all of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, that's all of Israel, recognized that Samuel was a prophet of the Lord. So all of Israel recognized this is a prophet. Everything he says comes to be. And that's going to be significant later because as we see incidents later, people recognize the role that Samuel has. Okay? And the Lord is confirming his role. And then finally, it tells us, the last verse tells us, verse 21, that the Lord revealed himself to Samuel by the word of the Lord. The Lord revealed himself to Samuel by the word of the Lord. I think that's so important for you and I to understand. Remember what it said earlier? It said earlier that he did not know the Lord because he didn't have the word of the Lord. Now he's knowing God because he's being revealed to him what the word of the Lord. That is so key that you and I understand that. I think that's something for you and I to think about in our own time with the Lord. Are we studying his word and allowing him to reveal himself to us? So that brings us to the end of chapter 3. Now we're still in the first part where we're talking about the prophet Samuel. Remember, ultimately this book is going to be moving towards David becoming king. But we're in this beginning section, the first of the three sections with regards to Samuel, and we see him being called up and being affirmed as a prophet. Now, next week, when we get into chapter 4, we're going to go from chapter 4 to chapter 7, and the focus turns to the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. And that's what we're going to be looking at next week.